0: Hello, everyone. This is Historian Splaining. A historian tells you why everything you know is wrong. So my semester is over, and so I figured I would go back and make another patron-only podcast, which I owe to my patrons. Uh, and this one will be another myth of the month, in keeping with the pattern. And specifically, I want to talk now about political left and right. I have made a number of patron-only podcasts before over the course of the past 10 months or so, and I recently figured that probably what I should do is make those open to the public after a year has passed. So the first one that I produced about uh, the exodus will... I probably will make public after it's a year old which will be in a few months from now Uh, so this one that i'm recording now about political left and right will i if all goes according to plan will be for patrons only for one year if you find it interesting please tell your friends and uh, post on social media and encourage people to sign up as patrons but this one will be free for anyone who is a patron already as of now And this is a topic that at least one patron, I think maybe more than one, asked me to discuss. And it's a bit different from my earlier myths of the month because it's not exactly a narrative. It's more a classification scheme uh, that has been used repeatedly and has been used as kind of material for spinning stories and narratives for more than 200 years now. Uh, So I'm going to talk a little bit about what it means, about its strengths and weaknesses and where it comes from and what that might reveal. So what is left and right in political terms? Well, it's just, as I said, a simple classification scheme that imagines that there are basically two sides to any given political dispute. Uh, And political parties and groupings and alliances in the Western world, including uh, the US, Britain, continental Europe, such as France and Germany, other English-speaking countries, and even to some degree, other countries, including in Latin America, Brazil, Mexico, and India, have used this same basic categorization. But as observers constantly point out, including ordinary people, when they're discussing politics in their everyday lives, this simple binary of left versus right very often breaks down. There are all kinds of questions and issues that arise every day where people do not simply line up according to left versus right uh, alignments. Uh, And... A current example of that, which we've probably heard of, is the Yellow Vest protests that have been going on for several weeks now in France, which were triggered, although they're not simply about this one issue, but they were triggered by the institution of a higher gas tax for drivers. And people have gone out into the streets, protested, rioted, called for the resignation of the president. And they include a whole assemblage of people who ordinarily would be considered to the right or the left. okay? And in response, uh, a lot of political pundits and commentators have been kind of flummoxed and not known how to judge them because it's not easy to categorize this event or this movement according to a left versus right axis. Uh, And in fact, many uh, participants in these protests have said that they have associated freely across political lines, all the way from socialism or communism on the one hand, which would traditionally be considered the left, to neo-fascists on what we customarily consider the right. And so some people, in response to events like this, put forward a so-called horseshoe theory, where they sometimes argue that uh, the single left-to-right political axis is not actually a straight line, but it bends so that the two ends meet, or almost meet, like the shape of a horseshoe. This, I would argue, is a very poor theory and really fails to grapple with the weaknesses of the left-versus-right classification scheme. Uh, The more intelligent response would be to say that political views are complex uh, and nuanced. People have their own individual views and experiences that come into play in different situations, and that hence political views cannot simply fit along a single one-dimensional axis. Okay, and no person Uh, you know, even if you were to interview people individually, really no individual can be placed definitively on a one-dimensional left-to-right axis. You know, anytime anyone engages in politics at all and forms alliances or loyalties in the political realm, they're always making some sort of compromises and shifting and reshaping uh, their positions to try to fit with others. Uh, But, Still, those views at root are are complex and are not simply one dimensional. so this has become something of a truism that uh, this this one dimensional axis can't capture people's political views, and it's not an adequate description of politics uh, and yet we keep using it right it doesn't go away right Media continue to use it constantly uh, and sort of rely on it as a conceptual crutch for describing politics and ordinary people do as well right or it's not as if ordinary people on the street have come up with some alternative way some alternative scheme of describing politics they still tend to talk largely about left versus right so why why does this m- metaphor have such powerful uh, staying power Why has it remained so entrenched in political talk, as I said, for more than 200 years? Well, there are a number of reasons why uh, that operate on different levels. One is simply that people tend to gravitate towards simple patterns and simple binaries, right? Uh, So human beings, and this is something I'll probably talk about again in public lectures. We're, you know, because it's something that keeps coming up over and over when we talk about historical myths. People are pattern-making creatures. right? We look for pattern, we look for order, we look for reasons in the things that we see. We don't like to think that what we experience is just chaos. right? And we're constantly extracting forms and meanings out of the things we see, even when it's obvious that there isn't any. We sort of can't resist it. For example, people love to look at clouds and comment, you know, this cloud looks like a rabbit, and this cloud is shaped like England. Uh, and, and it's almost like our brains can't resist picking out uh, these forms and interpreting them, even when really intellectually we know that the cloud is not shaped like a rabbit. <laughs> it's an illusion. The shapes of clouds are random and accidental. Right, and we do this all the time. People are constantly, you know, seeing Mother Teresa in their French toast, uh, and things like this. Hearing voices, hearing footsteps where there aren't any. It's because our minds kind of can't resist, always looking for uh, a pattern in what we see, and hence, when we see something as complex as a political dispute or a political debate, we want to fit it into some simple explanation. Right? There's side X and there's side Y, and X is like this and Y is like this, and, and that can somehow account for what we're, what we're seeing. It can make order uh, out of it, even when really we know it's not that simple at all. Uh, and really, in some cases, we know that our conceptual scheme really doesn't make any sense, but we just kind of have to gravitate towards something. Uh, you know, the same, uh, the same logic underlies abstract art right? Abstract artists make, you know, weird splotches of paint on a canvas and refuse often to give any sort of name or explanation to what it is. And yet people go look at it and come up with ideas. If it's expressing this feeling or it represents this scene or this experience, you know, we project our interpretations onto what we know, uh, is really meaningless at root. And, uh, the same with music, right? We get feelings, moods, we imagine scenes and stories out of music that is simply rhythmic sounds with no, with no symbolic meaning. Now, another reason why people, I think, gravitate towards this simple left-right binary when talking about politics is that it is true that all conflict, if we look at it from the point of view of game theory, all conflict does tend to to resolve into two sides, right? When you're engaged in a struggle and you're afraid of losing, you look for allies. And one of the basic guiding principles of strategy in any conflict is that the enemy of my enemy is my friend, right? And so when you put people into a realm where they're all contending with one another and they're all trying to win some struggle for power or to win an argument for that matter, they... uh, People tend to form into two opposing camps, you know, just like in in warfare, right? So we can see how, you know, the, the two world wars had many different players, primary and secondary players all around the world, all struggling with one another for different reasons and with different goals in mind. And yet they, from the very beginning, organized themselves into two coalitions, so the same is true in, in political debate, right? People, people seek out strength in numbers. People seek out strategic allies. And as camps form, they coalesce into two sides. And these two sides then tend to influence their own members and adopt kind of similar attitudes and similar views, right? People start to adjust and to conform their views to the camp that they have chosen to align themselves with. So it's not surprising that when you have a sort of wide open political field, as you do, for instance, in a liberal democracy, that you're going to tend to see two sides contending with one another. Now, why, why though, do we call them left and right, which are ultimately just completely arbitrary, uh, you know, meaningless labels? right that have nothing to do at all with the actual content of uh, of the dispute of of the of the issues and and the questions that they're contending over well there are historical reasons and I'll talk about that about where these terms left and right first started to be used to describe political debate but also I think it serves certain people's interests okay it's it is useful and advantageous for some people, particularly in the political class, to have these two sides sort of warring against one another that don't clearly represent any material interests, okay? So talking about left versus right can serve as a way to obscure and cover over the, the sort of vested Uh, interests that different people are trying to advance or to protect. Most significantly, I think, it helps to obscure sort of top-down class conflict, right? Conflict between the more powerful or more privileged elites of society and the bottom of society. You don't have to sort of acknowledge that uncomfortable fact of class contention if you frame it in these neutral terms of left versus right and i think that this uh sort of uncomfortable reality if you want to go so far as to call it that was in a way has has been exposed and brought to light again in recent again in recent years okay uh you know the yellow vests uh, are an example of that, and I'll, I'll mention that again later. Also, interestingly, when Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, this sort of flashpoint of political contention and, uh, and interest in the past year in the United States, uh, when she won her primary uh, earlier this year, some commentators said, oh, well, she beat the incumbent Joe Crowley by running to the left, so this was this was she sort of outflanked him to his left. And arguably that is true in you know in the terms of current political debate that she advocated very strongly for certain policies like Medicare for all, free college tuition, abolishing ICE that are currently considered to be left policies in the United States and that Joseph Crowley just sort of didn't say anything about just seemed to be indifferent to. But she argued that, in fact, she didn't win from the left, she won from the bottom, that her campaign differed from the incumbents because she was trying to organize people who had previously been uninvolved politically, who came from the working class and the middle class, who were volunteers, and that she didn't use a lot of money or media exposure Uh, but rather, uh, you know, grassroots volunteer action. So she believed that that was the salient difference and that she was running, in her words, from the bottom, not from the left. Now, of course, that's open to interpretation and opinion, whether you credit Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's description of her campaign and of her victory. But regardless, I think it brings up this sort of difficult, uncomfortable rift uh, in how we talk about politics and whether we talk about sort of elites versus the majority uh, and whether we talk about actual social groups with different levels of power and different economic interests rather than simply framing it as left versus right. And as I said, uh, when it comes to the Yellow Vest protests, uh, recently a, a radio reporter Spoke to a French woman who was who had joined the protests in Paris and who was spending a lot of time in sort of makeshift encampments uh, on the streets of Paris. And while there, she engaged in debates and disputes with another fellow protester who was right wing, who was uh, who supported the uh, Rassemblement National or National Rally, the sort of neo fascist party that is the successor or just the renamed rebranding of the Front National, National Front. And she told the reporters that she argued and contended with this person who was supposedly at the other end of the political spectrum from her. But she said, ultimately, I stay by him and uh, continue to protest together with him because in her words at the end of the day his cupboard is bare too right so so you could say in this sense just material need trumped political ideology you could say if you want to put it that way but really that's i think also a shallow way of looking at it it's more that in, in in many important situations, it's simply material interest, material need that guides people's political action, uh, and that left and right often are just superficial labels that ignore or intentionally obscure that underlying reality. Okay. Now let's say that we credited this idea of left versus right and said, "Well, it does actually capture something important and lasting about people's political views, and that it's still meaningful in some way to say someone is to the left or the right." Well, then the question is, what does it say? What? How can we sum up the meaning of being politically leftist or left-wing or left of center as opposed to being right-wing? or right of center? Well, there's a certain definition that, or characterization that people often make regarding political left and right, and how they're distinguished, which is that the left is more egalitarian, and puts greater emphasis on equality, as opposed to the right, which puts greater emphasis on freedom. Okay, and we can see certain issues like, for example, minimum wage laws where the left would be more supportive and sees minimum wage as a vehicle for equalizing economic wealth and distribution whereas people to the right might be more opposed and believe in freedom of contract, right? So using an example like that, we can sort of um, uh, illustrate what a lot of people take to be the meaning of of left and right. However, many political philosophers who are not caught up in this sort of shallow day-to-day punditry of political media have pointed out that this doesn't really work, that 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 scheme of the left being more egalitarian and the right being more libertarian really only applies to particular economic issues. okay? It fails to deal with, all kinds of social or so-called cultural issues like uh, abortion or birth control, where it's more often been people on the right who are opposed to the freedom to use birth control, for instance. Um, It also runs directly counter to issues like uh, obscenity laws and marijuana or cannabis laws, where, uh, you know, when it came to obscenity laws, it was mainly people on, supposedly on the political left, who worked to repeal or relax those laws. And likewise, today, when it comes to marijuana or cannabis, you mostly have people on the political left calling for legalization and the freedom to choose to use that drug, um, Likewise, if we go back to the 19th century, uh, there were questions of the free press, okay? Is it legal to, say, advocate abolishing the monarchy? Is it legal to openly oppose uh, a war? And it's tended to be people on the political left, particularly in France, who have uh, favored free press, and also uh, divorce, really, if, if we want to talk about so-called cultural issues around the family, marriage, child rearing, the first one that really divided uh, politics in Western Democratic or Republican societies, it was divorce. That was kind of the first battle. Uh, and again, it was people on the left who favored legalizing divorce or relaxing the rules and requirements for divorce and it was people on the political right basically across the board in all these different countries I've mentioned who have who opposed legalizing divorce and uh, it continued to be a live issue for generations and just an interesting fact in the United States the last state to legalize divorce at all in any situation was South Carolina, which legalized it in 1949. So basically, this sort of freedom versus equality uh, description just really doesn't fit the actual situation. It's sort of a, a generalization drawn out of a limited number of mainly economic policy debates. Some also say, well, the left favors change while the right favors continuity. This, again, it seems to be situational. It may be true in most cases, in most debates we look at, but it doesn't seem to be true uh, across the board because that's completely contextual. Uh, You know, laws, policies, social institutions are always changing every year, every generation. Uh, And so advocating change can mean anything, you know, change from what to what, okay? And there are uh, constant uh, issues arising where people on the right call for fairly radical change or reform, whereas people on the left might want continuity, such as uh, public education. Should public education be privatized? Should money be shifted into privately operated schools like charter schools or even private schools through the vehicle of vouchers? Um, Should Social Security or Medicare in the United States be privatized, moved from a public trust to the private market? Okay. Um, And should, say, abortion be restricted? Should abortion where it's previously been legal uh, on demand instead be more and more restricted as is happening in many states like Texas and Mississippi. You know, These are just uh, a few instances where conservatives are calling for a significant change in laws and policies, even on very important longstanding sort of pillars of civil society like public schools, whereas it's people on the left who want to maintain the current institutions as they are. Right? So we have to look deeper if there is any sort of underlying meaning to left and right. We have to look deeper at what are the particular changes that particular people want and why. Okay, likewise, there in the mid-20th century, there was a strong consensus around other pillars of civil society like unions, the idea that most of the workforce, including the industrial workforce, should be unionized, that government policy should aim for full employment, that domestic industries should be supported by protectionist trade policies. These were all basically consensus positions between about the 1940s and the 1970s, and yet they have been called into question and become more controversial over the past 40 to 45 years and the people who have called these ideas into question of of widespread unionization support for unions full employment protectionism include people who are supposedly on the left and right sides of the divide it might be somewhat more on the right but it's really included both okay so there's been a, a shift in opinion around these institutions that is sometimes uh, described under the umbrella term neoliberalism, which is a loosely speaking, a sort of philosophy of governance, especially of economics, that is rooted in Austrian economic thought and the Chicago school in the United States, and that tries to sort of Revive, but also revise and adjust older Victorian laissez-faire liberalism, okay? The idea that the market can correct social problems and sort of iron out uh, social ills and that uh, the government should use uh, a very light touch in, in regard to trade and enterprise, but sort of the change you might say when it comes to neoliberalism in recent decades is that they see the, the economy and the market more as a system to be managed and guided by government, right? They see, uh, they see a, a sort of partnership of government and private market enterprise as the ideal arrangement so it's not really as hands-off as say Victorian or Gilded Age liberalism and this neoliberalism has really influenced both parties you know it's it's very strong in the Republican Party you know and we hear endlessly about these organizations like American Enterprise Institute and club for growth that try to secure the Republican Party in this neoliberal process uh, pro-business, pro-market camp. Uh, at the same time in the Democratic Party, you have Third Way, the New Democrats Coalition, and other groups that were that have also embraced this neoliberal sort of point of view, right? And and so it's influential across both parties and it's kind of taken on the mantle of centrism that to to subscribe to these ideas puts you in the political center. Which of course is a very convenient place to place yourself propagandistically to say, "Oh, I'm you know I'm a moderate, I'm reasonable, uh, I am not an extremist on either side of the political uh, spectrum." But it's significant, you know, to note that in fact these ideas do represent very significant changes from the broad consensus of politics in the U.S. and Europe and most of the West in the mid-20th century, right? In, in that sense, it's you could say it's radical or you could say it's kind of reactionary, right? It's an attempt to go back to the 19th century before the reforms of uh, the Great Depression, the New Deal, the first labor government in Britain, and the sort of post-war consensus. So in this way, uh, again, speaking of the political center doesn't necessarily make any more sense than speaking of left and right. And it raises the question, are these terms of left, right, and center just sort of neutral vessels, you know, that basically have no inherent meaning or that don't uh, convey uh, anything in particular about views or values but that they're just kind of neutral placeholders into which different people and different ideas can be funneled okay rather like i would compare it to like uh, the dugouts in a stadium right so any team can go occupy a dugout right Uh, if if a stadium has a designated dugout for the visiting team that could be anybody right? One week it's the Cardinals, another week it's the Padres, it doesn't matter. Uh, And you might even switch dugouts, why not? You know, it's just an arbitrary label to say this one's the home team, this one's the away team, okay? So maybe left and right are like that. People cycle in year to year, generation to generation, kind of plug themselves in on one side or the other, but the fact that left in quotation marks, means a certain set of policies or views in 1952 doesn't mean that it means anything like that in 1998, right? They might be just completely, uh, just an arbitrary accident of history, okay? Now, I don't know if that's the case, but I think that that is an open question to consider. And if we look at it that way, then we it might make more sense of certain phenomena that people have observed in political history. For example, a very important one where over the course of the 19th century in Europe, nationalism supposedly moved from the left to the right. Okay, So the idea that the power of a state should rest upon the sort of organic unity of a nation with a shared culture and shared heritage and particularly a shared language That was considered a left-wing idea at the time of the French Revolution and the Napoleonic Wars. But then by the end of the 19th century, we're talking about incidents like the Dreyfus Affair, right, where you have French nationalists uh, demonizing and really knowingly persecuting Jews who served in the French military and the French government because they saw them as alien to the French nation, right? And these were consciously right-wing people, people who supported the power of the church and of social tradition as against the sort of secular republican left. So... This is sort of a great mystery in in European historiography. Why why did nationalism move from left to right? And I would say, well, the sort of easiest reason that we can point to is simply that the enemies changed, right? The basic idea of the nation-state remained constant. But early on, when people were trying to establish nation-states for the first time, their opponents were the traditional institutions like the Church and especially the nobility, who were seen by people like for example, the Abbe, who wrote "What is the Third Estate?" Uh, you know, they saw these these noble classes as kind of internal enemies that didn 't really belong to the nation at all, and so they had to be overthrown or at least dispossessed in order to create a a national society. But once that had been achieved, once you get to, say, the 1870s, 1880s, you're looking at uh, the, the Third Republic in France, you're looking at the First uh, German Reich, uh, you're looking at democratization in Britain and the U.S. Those sorts of elites no longer, you know, they've, they've effectively been dethroned. They no longer have the sort of power and prestige they used to. So in this sense, the sort of nationalist's dream has already been accomplished, so if you still are a nationalist and you still want to keep this feeling of national unity and fervor and purpose, you have to look for more enemies. You have to look for some other internal enemy. You can look for external enemies. That's always convenient, right? You know, start a war with Germany or, uh, you know, s- start a war with Spain or whoever. Uh, but internally, you have to look for for someone else who... Uh, deviates right who's different from the majority and who can at least be seen or imagined to be a sort of uh powerful enemy a sort of uh controlling uh dominating force in the way that the old nobility was and jews are an are an obvious target for that right other minorities as well but jews are sort of you know they're they're kind of the old favorite right so nationalism turned its attention if you want to think of nationalism as this kind of organic entity which obviously it's not that simple but if you're a nationalist then it seems natural or appealing to turn your ire towards minorities like jews and so in a sense it it doesn't matter whether you call it left or right you know it's nationalism didn't move it remained basically the same thing it had been before it just changed the villain right? It recast the villain. Uh, and it's only in retrospect that we think of this as somehow moving from, from left to right. So this is one example where I think if you, if, you, if you think of left and right as just kind of neutral placeholders or neutral, you know, umbrella categories into which you can toss anything, then questions like this can actually become easier to account for. Now, the left versus right dichotomy continues to be appealing, as I said earlier, because people gravitate towards simple stories and simple conceptual schemes and dichotomies that very often are clearly inadequate to explain what we're what we are talking about, okay And as sociologists and philosophers have pointed out, once you've accepted a certain categorization scheme, it Allows us to ignore important differences within groups, you know. And some have pointed out examples like, in some languages like Finnish, uh, there's no distinction between the p sound and the b sound. Okay, so let me let me just try to say that again clearly. P as in pattern, and b as in butter. Right. Uh, to English speakers, those things are are distinct, and the same word like hair or bear can have a completely different meaning depending on whether you understand it to have a p sound or a b sound now in languages where that distinction isn't made people not only are not accustomed to distinguishing them they really are incapable right if it's not part of a conceptual scheme that you've grown up with and internalized and practiced it kind of makes no sense the two things are indistinguishable to you right and this uh, can lead to all kinds of terrible misunderstandings, right? If you don't know if someone is talking about a fruit like a pear or an animal like a bear, right? And this problem, of course, can happen in, when we're talking about politics and political debates, right? Say if we talk about the left wing, you know, I've had arguments with people where uh, someone will allied or fuse together different leftist camps that in my view and in my experience are totally different right so you might talk about the sort of social justice or identity politics left you know who are concerned about like you know media representation of transgender people things like that as opposed to the socialist or even marxist left which sees everything in terms of material class conflict right those are two different ways of viewing the world and two different sets of values that sometimes can align, you know, and can be reconciled together, but sometimes don't, you know, and often come into conflict, you know, and you can say, well, those two things are connected, but in in practice, people often get into fights with one another, you know, and you'll have someone say, I really want to vote for this person because they're African American, and then a socialist will say, but They're not left-wing. They're a centrist or they're a neoliberal. And so you shouldn't support them. And these can often become very nasty arguments because just to label two people as supposedly on the left doesn't mean that they agree in their goals or their values or how they go about making political decisions. And so our left versus right categorization elides those differences, okay? An obvious point, right? Also, when people adopt conceptual and categorizing schemes they can ignore important similarities across boundaries okay Uh, this we should see all the time you know people are people are always saying oh you know we're all people we're all the same and yet in practice people think Jews and Muslims are different and so they have to uh, fight or contend with one another Uh, even though their theology is almost exactly the same their mythology is mostly the same their uh, sacred languages are very closely related, and a lot of phrases and terms are mutually comprehensible between Hebrew and Arabic. You know, when, when, a, when a Jewish person greets someone and expresses a wish for peace, they say, shalom aleichem. And when a Muslim person does the same, they say, assalam aleichem. And my father works sometimes at a museum as a sort of expert docent. And he said that they give out pamphlets at this museum in many different languages. You know, there's one in Russian, one in Japanese, Chinese, Portuguese, and so on. And he once uh, looked and compared the Japanese version to the simplified Chinese and saw that they looked extremely similar, most of the characters the same or easily identifiable between one and the other. And he turned to someone else uh, at the museum who was Japanese and said, you know, don't these look really similar? Are you able to read uh, the Chinese version because it it looks like so many of the characters are the same? And they just sort of shook their head and, you know, waved their hand and said, no, 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 it's completely different. (laughs) because, Because people... You know, this is what Freud calls the the narcissism of small differences. right? People like to over inflate the distinctions between themselves and others who often are are very much like them and to and who, to anyone else coming from uh, an outside position would see as practically indistinguishable, right? And the same thing, of course, can happen uh, politically speaking. You know, you can have people who say, well, I would never vote for someone from that other party. They're terrible. Even though if you went down a list of political issues, they would find that they agreed on most or all of them. They still see the label as important. And that's aside from people simply saying, I'll never vote for them, I'll never support them because of some demographic group they belong to. But even just when it comes to political ideology and alignment, we can Uh, often engage in this this, uh, overinflation of differences. And the real problem which I've been trying to get at when it comes to all of these myths that I've talked about uh, is that people often come to believe that the binaries and the categories that we use to describe things are more real than reality, that uh, we, we give them this, we, we, as philosophers would say, we reify them. We imagine them to be sort of real, concrete things in the world rather than just concepts that someone uh, made up in their head, right? So a great example of this like is sex differences, right? So a lot of people might say, oh, well, you know, your gender can change, but your underlying biological sex is just male or female, Right, Everyone is born, male or female, and it's sort of imprinted in you biologically. And yet, as is often pointed out by biologists, uh, it's not that simple. There are a lot of people uh, who are intersex, right? And it seems from surveys and studies, probably a bit over 1% of the population is intersex, meaning they have some combination of features and qualities, whether it's anatomy or hormones or chromosomes, from both sides of the sex binary, right? And they can't be clearly classified as one or the other. Uh, And yet when they walk out into the world, they have to take on one or the other, right? Society expects you to be of the male or female gender. And so you have to adopt the sort of norms, the terminology of that gender, even if your underlying biological sex is not clearly one or the other. And conservatives because you know to be blunt it's mostly conservatives who disagree with this argument often respond oh but that's just a tiny minority that's just a little those are just a small minority of aberrant or deformed people who are intersex and so we can just ignore them Uh, but when you do that you're basically saying well uh i I'm choosing to discount facts that don't fit my preconceived conceptual scheme, right? And you're saying, well, if there are some people who don't fit clearly into male or female according to my normal criteria, then that doesn't mean that my conceptual scheme is wrong because it fails to conform to those examples, but rather there's something wrong with those people because they fail to conform to my conceptual scheme. You know, it's putting the cart before the horse. And as I said, it's sort of imagining that uh, your concepts are more real than reality. right? And this is the kind of thing I think we do all the time. Uh, And similarly, when people uh, are on one side or the other of a political divide, and they sometimes attack people who are otherwise their allies or otherwise often agree with them, and they attack them by saying, well, you can't say that because that's not A leftist thing to say or that's not a conservative thing to say you're basically saying well rather than adjusting or putting aside my political scheme of people being left or right instead I'm attacking the person who fails to conform to my scheme right I'm trying to force them I'm trying to force real people into my preconceived concepts right so this is just one of of many arenas where this happens Okay, so now this this raises the question of are left and right just another false deceptive dichotomy, right? Is it just a, a conceptual scheme that simply distorts reality and has no underlying uh, usefulness? Well, I would say that there are certain differences, there are certain uh, unique factors when it comes to political left and right that help to redeem it a little bit and suggest that maybe It has a validity or usefulness more than many other simplistic dichotomies. For one thing, it's an axis, okay? It's not just a hard and fast dichotomy with a line down the middle, like when we talk about sex, okay? It's an axis. It's understood that people uh, vary, right? There are shades of difference and that people can move, right? People can go from one place on this axis to another, But still, I would say one single dimension is not enough. You know, as the the sort of ridiculous horseshoe argument reveals, uh, people are more complicated than that. It can't be boiled down to just one, one dimension of variation, right? But at least it allows for some level of nuance. Another reason is the origins of where this system came from. So the left versus right conceptual scheme actually arose organically. It was not conceived in the mind of some theorist and then imposed upon reality. It actually came from unplanned, spontaneous actions by a real group of people in history. Okay, it was not planned. It arose from a particular historical situation. And what is that? Well, it arose from people's seating in the French National Assembly and the French National Constituent Convention during the French Revolution in the 1790s. Okay, so that's where this metaphor originated. How did this happen? Well, when the French National Assembly formed among deputies who had walked out of the Estates General, uh, they set about trying to create a constitution, something they never really successfully did. And one of the crucial constitutional issues they had to discuss was the role of the king. And particularly, there was intense debate over whether the king should have veto power. You know, They all sort of agreed that there should be some kind of representative legislative body. But should the king be able to veto actions of that body? Well, people began to, to fight over this question and other questions. And as they went to meetings of the assembly, they started to arrange themselves nearby people who tended to agree with them, right? And this was uh, a natural thing to do. It wasn't, uh, you know, a plot. It was just if you sat next to someone who really hated your guts, there would be a lot of spitting and abuse and screaming. Uh, And so it was simply more comfortable and more orderly to, to, to look out, to look for people, who were more aligned with your views and your preferences and hence to be able to engage in a more orderly discussion, right? And as it happens, the National Assembly included some nobles or people who had at least some sort of noble or high-class background, and those people claimed the seats to the right of the speaker, okay? Because traditionally... The right hand is, you know, is considered uh, cleaner and more appealing than the left hand, right? Most people are right hand dominant, and so it was a long-standing custom that a guest of honor of high birth or high class at a social gathering should be seated to the right hand of the host, right? And and being to the left of the host, was lower status. And so people from noble backgrounds in the assembly concentrated and clustered over to the right of the speaker. They sort of imagined the speaker as being like a social host and placed themselves to the right, whereas people who came from lower status backgrounds, it, it just didn't occur to them or they didn't care, and so they ended up concentrated on the left. And hence, many disputes uh, came up where people to the right side of the room were more in favor of one side as opposed to those on the left side of the room. And as it happened at this time, the king had chosen to align himself when it came to the workings of the estates general. The king had crucially chosen to align himself more with the nobility against the commoners, right? So the nobles tended to favor maintaining the traditional prerogatives of monarchy in some form, as opposed to commoner backgrounds, okay? And so this idea started to take shape, this sort of informal terminology started to form, where people who wanted to maintain traditional social institutions of all sorts were to the right. And people who wanted to abolish those institutions and replace them with a republic modeled on, say, the ancient Roman Republic or the Italian uh, city-state republics, they sat to the left. And they were, in a sense, to the left in quotation marks, right? It, it became a sort of common metaphor. Okay, now other related questions that came up uh, in this assembly included voting rights, uh, you know, who would be able to vote, would non-property holders be able to vote, and later would women be able to vote, uh, slavery, should slavery in the French colonies be abolished, and control over church staffing, okay, who who has the right to appoint the leaders of the church in France, the, the government or the Vatican, right, And it's important to notice that when it comes to these different questions, all of them have been definitively settled one way or another in the years since the French Revolution, right? It's broadly accepted across all liberal democracies that there should be no property requirement for voting. Women should be able to vote. Slavery should be illegal. And that the church should be able to staff itself and choose its own personnel. That's not the business of the state. So all of these questions have been resolved, but in the case of voting rights and slavery it's the left position that won whereas when it comes to the church in at least on this particular question it's the right position that won okay so they haven't all been resolved in one direction they've been resolved in different directions but all of them now are basically completely consensus points right there is no party in France or any other western state that really questions these basic uh, conclusions of those debates, right? And so it you know it's not adequate just to say well the left was sort of on the right side of history or the left was was forward looking. You know that's kind of true. You know you could say if you're a leftist that's what probably what you prefer how you prefer to see it. But really at the time in the 1790s it was a set of questions that were live and unresolved at the time that now are no longer on the table, right? So, So we can't simply fit people and ideas today into that scheme from that time, right? Because it's different debates and different principles that are at issue. Now, this terminology of left and right took a long time to get out of France. You know, it didn't fit so naturally. You know, it's true that a lot of these basic debates and disagreements that were being Fought over in the assembly and the convention did spill over to Britain in the form of a pamphlet war between Edmund Burke, a uh, Whig member of parliament, and Thomas Paine, the same radical revolutionary pamphleteer who wrote Common Sense and supported American independence. Uh, These two fought with one another and. Uh, Burke defended the idea of reform that follows in lines of existing institutions inherited from the past, whereas Paine called for the complete rebuilding of society on the basis of abstract principles. And so his uh, response to Burke was called the rights of man, right? And he saw this idea of natural rights as the principle to guide all politics, right? So it's true that that sort of debate did spill over into Britain and into the English-speaking world, but they didn't call it left and right. You know, they debated about precedent, about tradition, about constitutions, about revolution. But left and right were not really used to describe politics, at least in Britain, until the 1930s, when you had a strong labor movement, a radical socialist labor party, and the British society was really deeply acrimoniously divided over the question of the Spanish Civil War and whether or not to support the Spanish Republican forces against the fascist rebels. Uh, And the Spanish Civil War, in a way you can see, is kind of the first stage in a Europe-wide ideological civil war where you have uh, socialists, some degree of liberals, and Soviet communists on one side versus fascists and right-wing fascist sympathizers on the other. And so it was only once this uh, left versus right dichotomy on the continent was coming to blows that people in Britain started to think of themselves and talk about themselves as fitting into a left versus right scheme. and similarly in in the united states right left versus right only gradually came into political terminology in the 1930s 40s and 50s so how did this happen how how did it uh, what happened in the meantime that made it possible for eventually this conceptual scheme to get out of france and be embraced by people beyond beyond france in other democratic republican societies well, after the French Revolution, you have a gradual emergence of socialism on the left, first in France and then spreading to other countries. Okay, As Europe industrializes and you get greater concentrations of mostly poor working people working in industry for very low pay in very bad conditions, while a small number become very wealthy from the profits of industry, you get a growing socialist movement. Uh, that advocates for some sort of intervention some kind of state intervention in uh, in the workings of industry right to redistribute profits or to seize uh property to seize the industries themselves and put them under uh shared social public control okay and uh There's a wave of radical unionism, especially after about 1850, with various sort of anarchist and socialist unions calling for revolution. You get Marxism, right, beginning from uh, Marx and his communist allies, and then uh, gradually spreading. And so all of these new philosophies that emerged in the wake of the Industrial Revolution were basically understood to be on the left. Right. They were they were different. Right. Socialists of various sorts and anarchists and Marxists don't all believe the same thing. They don't all have the same uh, plan or project, but they were all understood to be in some way on the left. There were also other sort of more managerial radicals, you know, radicals who responded uh, by. Imagining that the sort of enlightened, educated middle class could somehow mitigate and manage the effects of industry. Okay? Some were secularists, uh, utopians, uh, utopian socialists, Fabian socialists, uh, logical positivists, which became very powerful first in France and then even more so in Latin America, you know, order and progress. Uh, and these were also in some way responding to the poverty, the inequality, and the social ills like disease and crime that came with industrial growth, but they didn't, they were not as revolutionary or as radical as other socialists. Now, all of these various socialists and reformists were opposed by traditional liberals, right, those who believed in small government, uh, allowing uh, the free market to operate, uh, people like Bastia in France, okay, who pointed to principles of the rule of law and the limits of government power, also conservatives who tried to bolster or restore the old order, right the privileges of monarchy, uh, nobles, and most especially the church. Uh, and and kind of shore up traditional social hierarchies as a way of managing and, and, to some degree, humanizing society. And then eventually, after World War I, fascists, right? So this new sort of movement of extremist authoritarians who wanted to build an authoritarian kind of militarized society in a state of constant war with clear lines of power and authority. And sometimes, in some cases uh racial purity, right? And and these sort of uh purification of national groups from supposed racial outsiders. So, by the time we get to 1930, we have this you know extreme range of different views, all of which in some way are responding to the effects of modern industrial society, right? But have extremely different notions of, of how to respond. And it's remarkable that all of them in some way can more or less fit into this axis from left to right. You know, most of them knew pretty immediately where they fit on that axis, okay, at least initially within France. And then later after 1930, especially with the emergence of fascism presenting itself as a counterweight to communism and uh revolutionary leftism, this this metaphor was taken up in, in other countries and was used to classify and label this great multiplicity of parties and movements in Germany and, uh, and Spain and Italy and eventually the U.S. as well, although politics is much more uh, truncated and constrained as I'll talk about in the U.S. Now, Meanwhile there are some groups that have persisted for a long time that don't necessarily fit so clearly, right? And that have emerged sort of trying to claim in-between spaces apart from these larger uh, established movements like socialism or fascism. And these include Christian Democrats in in France, Germany and Italy, okay, who You might say are sort of hybrids, right? They're they're sort of centrist hybrids that believe in uh, some socialist ideas, some degree of public ownership, a strong social safety net, but also support traditional family norms, right? And oppose things like divorce, uh, and don't want to see a secular government on the model of the French Republic. And in a way, you could see them as hybrids, but that's sort of, again, that's kind of assuming that left versus right is actually an adequate scheme. You know, really, they are uh, mainly Roman Catholic uh, traditionalists who uh, have their own philosophy that they very consciously sort of guard as separate from left-right categories. There are also left liberals You know, people who are more uh, anti-socialist, who believe in more of a kind of liberal free market, as well as liberal policies with regards to family, divorce, homosexuality, censorship, and so on. And so in a way, you could see them as kind of opposites of these Christian Democrats. And yet, if you try to fit them into a left-right axis, they're, again, just somewhere in the middle, right? So it's not enough just to say the center is splitting the difference, you know, it's just it's just kind of a you know a gray zone. Uh, you know, the questions are are complicated and cross cutting. The left right axis also really doesn't map all that well onto the U S. Okay, it might seem as if it does because we've got two major parties, both of which date back to the nineteenth century, and one is more to the right, and one's more to the left, right? So what more do you want? Uh, but if we look at the origins of these parties. It really doesn't work. You know, the Democratic Party traces its origins to Jacksonian populism, right? And Jackson and his supporters can't really be classified as right or left. You know, they believed in extending the vote to all men, right, regardless of property holding. So in that way, you could say they are more populist, egalitarian, right? They also uh, believed in expulsions of Native Americans, right, And, and initiated the Trail of Tears. You know, which today leftists would say is you know one of the great crimes in American history. So they don't fit easily one way or the other. And likewise, if we look at the origins of of the Republican Party, you know, they don't uh, they, they don't fit this left versus right scheme. Rather, it's retrospective in the twentieth century that we fitted Republican and Democrat into these right and left uh, slots, right? Uh, Furthermore, if we compare these parties, especially of today, the Democratic and Republican parties, to the left-right scale that's used basically in almost all other democracies in the world, whether we're talking about Europe, Canada, Australia, India, uh, Latin America, you know, Brazil, they aren't really left and right, right? The Republicans, we can more or less say, are to the right, although they have no uh, attachment to sort of traditional material relations before the commercial market. You know, in that way, they would be called liberal uh, in some other countries, right? Because they put so much stock in the free market and small government. And when we look at the Democrats, you know, they often call themselves liberal, right? And that's the common term that we stick on Democrats who are more firmly entrenched and more partisan, uh, and more opposed to Republican policies, we call them liberal. And yet, as I've said, liberal in the traditional European scheme is not to the left; it's center. You know, and this term liberal was taken up and used by the Democratic Party, mainly beginning with Roosevelt and and the New Deal, and. Roosevelt redefined liberal as sort of uh, government action to protect the well-being and freedoms of individuals, including against big business, right? So, so it was this sort of uh, you know propagandistic appropriation of the term liberal. And to some degree, you can say, well, during the years of the post-war consensus from the '40s to the '70s. That is more or less where Democrats tended to stand, you know, very pro-union, usually protectionist. But since that time, especially because of this great uh, infiltration of neoliberal thinking into the Democratic Party, the Democratic Party today is pretty close, actually, to the traditional meaning of liberal, uh, where you believe in individual freedom, sort of social tolerance, uh, but... Also, limited government support for big business and the market, support for so-called free trade. You know, it's democratic uh, administrations, the Clinton administration that got NAFTA enacted. It's the Obama administration that pursued the TPP agreement. And so, in a way, you can say liberal in the American context has shifted back more to the traditional definition. And that puts it in the center Right, so effectively in the United States, what we have is a conservative party, or a kind of, you know, odd, idiosyncratic conservative party, and a center party, and no left party. <laughs> you know? And our electoral system, you know, the plurality election uh, to Congress, the electoral college, these things, these electoral systems tend to protect. The power of just two parties, and to close out any realistic chance for third parties to get uh, a voice in government, as opposed to say certain countries like uh, like Germany, where you have proportional representation, and any party that gets a small number of votes has a shot at getting seats in parliament and having a voice in government. Uh, The United States really doesn't allow that, so we have this very truncated political scene where. There are conservatives, there are liberals in the center, and then there's kind of no left, right? And socialism, much less radical communism or anarchism, you know, for whatever its good or bad qualities, uh, has really been pretty effectively stamped out of American politics. There There is practically no left wing comparable to what we see in other countries. And hence, you know, not surprisingly, when it comes to certain policy questions like, who should provide medical care, uh, the government, private for-profit institutions, private institutions paid by government. The United States is sort of nowhere in the conversation, nowhere in the debate that's already been resolved in other countries, whether you're talking about Europe, Canada, and others, right? So that has started to change a very little bit, where now there are a few self-identified socialists Uh, in Congress, all of them affiliated with the Democratic Party. But it's really uh, a small fringe, right? And it's hard to say where that trend or pattern might eventually go. So in these ways, when we talk about left versus right in the United States, we have to either say, well, uh, the scheme that we've inherited doesn't quite fit, or we're just kind of missing one branch, we're missing the left. But even when we look back at Europe today, the the left versus right scheme is also breaking down. okay I've already talked about the yellow vest protests, but those in a sense are just the tip of the iceberg, right There are all kinds of new parties suddenly forming and gaining followings uh, in various countries in Europe. Some like in Greece and Spain are ostensibly left-wing, some like the Rassemblement national in France or UKIP in Britain or AFD in Germany are ostensibly right-wing. Some are not clearly one or the other. Uh, In some countries like for example in New Zealand you have new parties emerging that are really unclassifiable you know like New Zealand first uh, is in some ways to the left in some ways to the right it has its own kind of you might say protectionist view and It has gained seats and now is in government, you know, has made an alliance with the Labour Party to uh, have a voice in government there. Uh, And everything is being scrambled, right? And in a way, again, we can only understand this partly by looking at class, right? Looking at whom does the political class represent, whose interests they speak for, what sort of elite has power, and... What about everyone else outside the political class? You know, there's just tremendously growing, intensifying distrust and resentment towards the sort of governing inner circles of all of these different countries, really all across the industrialized world. And more and more elections are just a matter of um, whom will voters vote for just to somehow stick it to or get rid of the existing governing elites, right? Right. And so it's a very volatile situation. And this left versus right scheme, you know, this is a particular juncture, I think, in history where the left versus right scheme really doesn't have much to offer and cannot explain what's going on. Now, lastly, I've left it as an open question whether there really is a substantive meaning and a substantive difference between the views and the people that we call left and right. And there has been some social psychological research in recent years that's tried to examine or uncover whether there's a kind of difference in psychology or sensibility that explains why certain people cluster to the left or the right, regardless or transcending any particular policy position, right? And uh, some of you may have heard of Jonathan Haidt, an American psychologist who wrote The Righteous Mind and has done uh, and has either conducted or reported on various different studies that try to find this sort of underlying difference in thinking between people on the left and right. And he's pointed more or less, you know, there are various different moral senses or impulses that he sees as different between people on the left and right that don't necessarily have anything to do with policy, right? And that can be teased out by asking about things like incest or uh, how you uh, speak to your minister. And he argues that the sort of basic underlying difference is between people who have more of a kind of open approach to the world and those who have a more closed approach to the world, right? How do you respond to ambiguity, right? Or uncertainty? Can you, do you accept ambiguity? Do you accept blurring of distinctions? Or do you want order and clarity, right? So you can do things like tell people a story that doesn't have a clear resolution at the end. And if someone reacts and says, that was a very nice story, I like that it was unresolved, as opposed to that's a terrible story, it just left hanging. You can use those responses to predict whether people are more Politically left or right, okay. Um, so conservatives, in his argument, are more attached to purity, right? Keeping substances or categories pure, uh, authority, you know, clear understanding of who's in charge, and group belonging, right? So they're people who want definite meaning and structure in their lives and experiences. Whereas people to the left, in his argument, are more are more open to to change to impurity, to mixing, and other researchers, i do not not Haidt himself, but other researchers that I've, I've heard of have found some very strange and interesting correlations when we look at the sort of everyday life choices of people on different ends of the political spectrum. For example, in the United States, left and right people tend to choose different dog breeds, And it's not what you might think. It's not conservatives are masculine and want a big, you know, mastiff or something. And liberals are namby-pamby and will get a shih tzu. No, it's that conservatives tend to choose purebred dogs that they can clearly identify as one recognized breed, whereas liberals will choose mixed dogs. Dogs that are individually unique and don't fit into a preconceived breed category, right? So so this is not, again, this is not, uh, doesn't necessarily fit our sort of stereotypical image, cultural image of left versus right. It's something more psychological and more strange. Now, as much as those observations and studies are very interesting, and I think they have a lot of value, they don't necessarily hold up or apply. When we talk about the bigger, broader political spectrum in other countries and actually it's been found that if you compare uh, americans say to french people openness to ambiguity is more common among people in the center whereas those who want a more definite and ordered experience of the world cluster on both the left and right extremes right so this this is something that that again distinguishes these other countries from the u.s where we don't really have much of a left and so, hence, it's possible, arguably, that people who want that sort of structured worldview simply gravitate to the right because there isn't a sort of extreme doctrinaire left wing, or at least it's much smaller in the United States as compared to other countries, right? So we, again, we, it may be more of a matter of centrist versus extreme rather than left versus right. And if that's the case, then again, we're left with this unresolved question of what's the difference between the left and the right, right? What What is, what is the factor? Is it maybe just your class position? Is it maybe just random chance? Uh, you know, which way the coin flips, whether people go to the left or the right politically. And again, most people are not simply one or the other. Everyone in some way mixes and matches different views and different positions from their own thought processes. Now, if we accept this Jonathan Haidt sort of social psychological explanation, uh, and we adjust it or give it more nuance by saying it's more a matter of centers versus extremes, that can make the center seem a whole lot you know, better. It can make centrist people appear to be the sort of mature, open-minded adults in the room as opposed to these kind of closed-minded doctrinaire people on on the left and right, you know? So in a way, this could serve very easily as kind of liberal centrist uh, propaganda, right? Now, I would say we should be very skeptical of that because there may be other reasons other than just personal psychology that determine whether someone is a centrist or not a centrist. And that can include how much you think is at stake in politics. Do you see political questions as crucially uh, important and possibly life or death? Or do you see it as more a kind of uh, you know enjoyable pastime or something to be sort of managed Uh, and kept under control by sensible people. And I think that today, when we see this increasing animosity and impatience with the political center, we have to consider that uh, I think a lot of what people are responding to is this kind of technocratic detachment you know, a sense that what does it matter if a school gets closed or privatized? What does it matter if a tax goes up or down, right? Uh, everyone should just sort of remain calm. Or as Mitt Romney once said, you know, tax issues should be decided in quiet rooms. You know, that's sort of the, the image that centrists often like to project about themselves, and that people in the public either like or more often now dislike. Uh, and it's. I think it's not so simple to say. Well, people who are to the extremes, left or right, are kind of closed-minded, intemperate, doctrinaire, uh, because in fact there there are different ways of being, sort of open-minded or intellectually flexible. Uh, and it's not necessarily by going to the political center and sort of adopting the uh, the assumptions or preferences of people in the middle politically uh it can also take a very different forms, including uh being willing to question your own assumptions right knowing clearly where you stand on one side or another of a dispute, but being able to separate out questions right and be able being able to see for instance that uh You know, if, say, for example, I'm opposed to climate change, uh, that doesn't mean that therefore I think that it's the right idea to raise a gas tax, right? Just to use something that we've already mentioned, right? You can have nuance by making fine distinctions, by being able to see points where the other side might be right instead of the side that you customarily associate yourself with, and being able to question your own camp, Right or your own political wing. Arguably, the most nuanced position you can possibly have is being able to both have a commitment to a certain position on the political scale, while also not being totally wedded to it, right? And being able to to step back uh, and look at the different arguments. Right. Uh, And that's very different from, say, the Steven Pinker attitude uh, of it's so wonderful to be a centrist. Right. I'm a radical centrist and sort of committing yourself (laughs) to that particular position on the political scale, because it seems somehow smarter or more enlightened than the other parts of the political scale. So finally, if someone were to ask me, should the left versus right description of politics be just abandoned or jettisoned? I would say yes. You know, that would certainly be my preference. But I recognize that it's quixotic, right? That people need some sort of simple axis. People need some sort of label to describe the different camps that uh, people organize themselves into in the political realm. But we need to be open to nuance and variation, right? And not expect people To always adhere to one place on the political spectrum right but embrace the fact that people are complicated right and i think that if we're going to get to that level then one of what really needs to change is more localization right these hard political debates should happen more face to face among people who know each other who, who have some sort of shared stake or interest and who can actually see and talk to one another as people, rather than being filtered through the media, right? Which is increasingly what's happened now is it's mass media, uh, all political disputes are reduced down to short, you know, if not sound bites, short, you know, one minute clips, uh, 280 or whatever character tweets. And uh, And that I think, tends to exacerbate this tendency to want to reduce down political questions to, to easy dichotomies, right, to easy uh, quick us versus them narratives, right? So, you know, I'm not the first to say this, but if we consider that the left versus right divide first came about because of the acrimony and anger within the National Assembly in revolutionary France, then probably we're only going to get past this sort of ideological straitjacket if... We managed to carry on debates in even smaller groups, right? Than than the National Assembly was, right? That's uh, in. You might say, in a way, it's the only way to <laughs> undo the damage. <laughs> okay. So thank you so much for listening. Again, uh, tell friends and associates uh, about the podcast. Uh, rate and review if you listen on a podcast platform. Uh, encourage people to become patrons and. I should be back with more within a few weeks. Thank you.